Father God, we thank you for the reminder um, this Christmas in the build-up um, in this Advent season that you are the God who draws near to us. And we pray that as we come to your word now, you would, by your spirit, draw near to us. Please illuminate these verses um, through what I have to say. Please make Jesus and his coming all those years ago real to us so that we would know him better and live for him. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder, um, at what point of the year do you start to feel Christmassy? What's, the, what's the, the point at which the corner turns and the inevitable roller coaster ride begins? Is it the, um, the lights going up in Corn Market Street? Is it the tree going up in Debenhams? I have a friend who, as soon as the tree is up in Tesco's, runs out and buys her tree. It's the marker that Christmas has begun. Is it the John Lewis advert on TV? Is it um, the semi-final of X Factor? Is it the work email saying the Christmas party is around the corner? For me... Um, it's actually always the same thing, and unfortunately it can, come, it can hit any time between late August and early November usually. This year, it came while I was in a coffee shop, minding my own non-Christmassy business. Back in October, um, I, I was just standing there, and my ears pricked up. The dulcet tones of Mariah Carey singing All I Want for Christmas is You, and that did it. Christmas had begun, the countdown, the emotions, the feelings began to rise within me. Do you know what I mean? When does it start for you? That's the thing about Christmas songs, isn't it? Christmas songs, whether you like them or loathe them, make you feel Christmassy, whatever those feelings are for you. They, they get you in the mood. They start the countdown. They, they cause feelings to rise within you. Excitement, joy, irritability. Fatigue. Christmas songs get us ready for Christmas, don't they? And it's a silly example, but um, I start there because it's not an entirely irrelevant example as we come to this kind of mini-series that we'll be looking at for the next uh, two weeks. We're essentially, for the next two weeks, going to be considering some of these verses, uh, the early part of Luke's account of the Nativity, where essentially Luke records for us two Christmas songs. I don't know if you've thought about that before, the passage that we had read. In these early chapters of Luke, as Luke tells his account of the birth of Jesus, before we get to the real meat of the nativity, we're prepared for it, if you like, by two Christmas songs. And songs are really significant in the Bible. Um, At loads of significant parts in the history of God's people, when significant things happen, we have recorded that people sing. Their songs are recorded because the songs that are recorded in the Bible at significant points in salvation history are songs which get us ready to feel the right way about what's going on. They're songs that uh, instruct us. They're songs that teach us. They're songs that model to us how we should be feeling about the things that are happening. And more than uh, an X Factor winner single or a classic Cliff Richard song, these Christmas songs I think we're going to see today and next week as well These songs, if we let them, will help us feel the right way about the Christmas story. They'll help us get ready for it. They'll help the right feelings and attitudes and thoughts rise up in our hearts. So let's dive in. Our first song, uh, this first Christmas 
preparation uh, is the song that Mary sings after she's been visited by the, the angel Gabriel, a familiar passage in the Christmas story. We had it a few verses earlier, and we'll, we'll refer back to it. If you've got the, uh, the red Bibles, I, I don't know what page this is on. Could someone shout that out for me? 1026. And it'd be really helpful if you kept that open so that we can consider Mary's song, and we'll jump back a bit uh, as well. But notice, I think, three things that this song does to get us ready for the Christmas story, for the real Christmas story, and how we should respond to it. Firstly, notice this. In Mary's song, we're invited to rejoice that God blessed Mary, verses 46 to 49. Straight away, we sing, you see, don't we, Mary sings a song of thanksgiving, a song of praise. Did you notice, verse 46, Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. And then, verse 48, she tells us why. She tells us why she sings with praise. 4, verse 48, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, she says, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Notice why Mary tells us she bursts into song. She rejoices because, three things, God has been mindful of her state, the state of her servant, He's blessed her, and she says, people will notice that she's blessed me for generations to come. And this mighty one, this Lord who has blessed me, is doing great things in me. We know the context. The the context is, is this visit that Mary's had by the angel Gabriel. And if you've got your Bibles open, you can flick back um, to verses uh, 26 through to 38. The context is that Mary's been amazingly visited by the angel Gabriel, an angel who's come from the presence of the Lord, we're told. And if you just look at verse 30, that's the main part of the announcement, the the news that Mary was given. Look what she was told. Gabriel says, you will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. His kingdom will never end. I know that's familiar, isn't it? That's, that's, we know how the Christmas story begins. It's the nativity, isn't it? It's all about angels and, and virgins and donkeys and baby Jesus. But we do need to stop and make sure that amidst the trees and the tints and all the other things, we don't miss the bombshell that Gabriel drops on Mary. Put yourself in her shoes for a minute. This is the God of the Jews. This is the God of of the world announcing that the time has come for him to deliver his people. This is it. This is the moment everyone's been waiting for. Uh, God is saying through Gabriel, I'm going to send my king, my Messiah. God's broken his 400 years of silence since the last prophet spoke. This is the, the big reveal. This is the curtain coming back. This is... God saying, I'm going to cosmically step into my world in Jesus and establish my rule and my reign. It's a bombshell. But the surprising thing is not just what God's going to do, is it? The surprising thing is that God's going to do it, he says, by blessing an unknown, unmarried, insignificant Jewish girl called Mary by giving her a baby. Do you see where Mary's praise comes from in those first verses? Mary's praise 
it bubbles up from this realization. God has noticed, God has blessed, God has done amazing things, not generally, not abstractly, but for me, she says. And the setup of, of the story, I think, makes it clear that this is what's unexpected in this early part of the nativity. If you just skip back, there's a lovely little detail, I think, in verse 26. When Luke tells us, uh, when he introduces Mary, uh, the angel Gabriel arrives, we're told Mary is from Nazareth. Did you notice? We're told and Nazareth was a town in Galilee, which presumably was because, if you're reading this uh, for the first time, back in Mary's day, you wouldn't have known where Nazareth was. This reminds me of growing up. I used to live in a little village um, called uh, Great Stukeley. And people would ask me uh, when I was younger where I came from, and I'd say, uh, Great Stukeley, followed quickly by, it's near Cambridge. Great. Got it. Do you see? The sense is not just that the Messiah is coming. The surprise is the Messiah is coming through Mary, who comes from a corner of the world that's so small and insignificant that no one would have ever heard of it. Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And Mary rejoices. She rejoices that God has done amazing things, not generally, not abstractly, but for me, she says. And notice as she rejoices, she invites us as the readers, as the listeners, the hearers of this song, she invites us to appreciate and rejoice that God has blessed her as well. Look at verse 48. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. She's saying, people in years to come, from generations to generations, will listen to this story, and they will marvel, not only that God does great things, which he does, he's mighty, it's what he does, but people will marvel that God would choose me to do great things. The first thing Mary's song does to get us ready for the Christmas story is it invites us to, to rejoice with Mary that God chooses to bless her by sending Jesus. And it's worth just pausing because it's a familiar theme in the Bible, but it might be something that we probably miss in terms of the story and the characters that God uses. God always, it seems, chooses the unexpected and the insignificant. God chooses younger brother Jacob not Esau, to build his people. God chooses ineloquent Moses, not Aaron, to lead his people. God chooses weak-looking David, not strong-looking Saul, to be king over his people. It's the way God works. He chooses small Israel among all the nations of the world to bless the rest of the world. God is always acting, it seems, in the Bible through the unexpected, the unimpressive, and the weak-looking things. And we should ask, why does he do that? Why does he fulfill his purposes in people who are unimpressive? I think it's this. Because it shows his favour. And what he is doing is not based on human effort or merit. He doesn't select people for his purposes because they deserve it or because they're impressive in a worldly sense. He's not constrained to do the things he's doing because we are deserving. Mary's song invites us to appreciate God's decision to bless Mary and to start the nativity story. God's decision to send Jesus, to choose her to be the mother of Jesus, to set in motion this, this plan to save the world. 
It flows only from his free decision and his grace. And if, if, we, if we weren't convinced about that, Mary, it seems, it's made clear that she is a recipient of God's undeserved grace. Again, look back to the, uh, the incident with Gabriel. Twice we're told, verse 28, that Mary is highly favoured, and verse 30, that she has found favour with God. And, and the word favour, the Greek word that Luke is using there, is literally the word for grace. Gabriel um, is saying, Mary, don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. God is using you because he's chosen to show you grace. Which, I think, as we listen to this song, should first and foremost simply help us rejoice, shouldn't it? We should rejoice that the starting point of the Christmas story, the familiar story of baby Jesus in a manger, etc., etc., the place it begins is with a reminder that God doesn't act through us and in us and for us because we're deserving as people, does he? He chooses to act simply because he's the God of grace. He chooses, out of his own free decision, to bless Mary with this incredible privilege of bearing the Messiah. Mary sings, she rejoices, her soul magnifies the Lord because... He has decided to bless her. And we should rejoice that God blessed Mary as well. Which is then enlarged upon, I think, the second thing that Mary moves on to say. Because in realising that God has decided to bless Mary, which should surprise us and cause us to rejoice, we're then encouraged to remember that actually, this is always the way God works. Which is our second part of the song. We should rejoice that God blessed Mary. We should remember next that God lifts up the humble. Let me read verses 50 to 53 again. Mary continues, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see how Mary, she takes this principle, God has blessed me, and she widens it out. Verse 48, all generations will see that Mary is blessed, but then, verse 50, she says his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary sings, she says, in doing this for me, in sending Jesus through me, God is actually showing how he acts towards all people. Namely, that he is a God who lifts up the humble. The word humble, it's an interesting word, isn't it? And it's used in slightly different ways in the Bible, actually. Um, the way it's used here in Mary's song is, I think, if we, if we notice the context, is to mean someone of low estate, literally to be poor, to have nothing of worth. And it's used twice in the song, did you notice, to describe, firstly, Mary. Uh, it says that she, God noticed her humble State, And then it's used in verse 52 to refer to a group of people, the humble, and it's literally the same word used to describe Mary. And then verses 50 to 53, I think, this middle section of the song, they, they enlarge this idea, I think, of what it means to be humble with three striking contrasts. Just have a look down at them. Verse 50 to 51, Mary says, The Lord has mercy for those who fear him, but he scatters the proud. 
Notice the contrast. Then verse 52, he brings down rulers, those with power and authority, but he lifts up the humble, those who have none of those things. Verse 53, the rich, those who have a lot, he sends away with nothing, but he feeds the hungry. Do you see how the three contrasts work to enlarge this idea of who it is that God blesses? I think Mary's song is exposing what presumably the people of her day would have assumed it was to be blessed. Where people would have placed their confidence, their their security, their, their hopes for significance and satisfaction. Do you see where people would have put those things? Inner pride and self-worth, verse 51. Worldly power and influence, verse 52. Material wealth, what you have, verse 53. And to understand, therefore, what, what Mary's saying about being humble, we need to consider the cultural context, because for Mary, to be a Jew at this time was to be of humble state in society, literally. It was to be lowly. It was um, to have little, often, materially. It was to be kind of um, socially marginalised and under Roman occupation. And so we've got to think a bit about how this sort of applies to us today, because We live, don't we, today in a different cultural context, in a place where we can't exactly relate, I think, to some of these things. We probably, most of us, I imagine, don't go to bed physically hungry, especially at Christmas time. Despite, I'm sure, financial pressures that are very real, relatively speaking, we enjoy wealth simply by living in the UK, in the west of the world, in the 21st century. Many of us, I'm sure, do have positions of power and influence. We wouldn't call ourselves rulers, but we do have that kind of um, state among our friends, among our peers, among our colleagues and workmates. And so I don't think Mary's saying, you know, you, you can't be a Christian if you have money or power or social standing. But we mustn't just discount the challenge here, because I think Mary is saying that those things, things that the world says make someone significant, can blind us to our real state before God. Material wealth, which makes us feel comfortable and secure, or influence, power, which makes us feel significant and valued. The sense that we're good or acceptable, maybe because of our inner morality or our achievements or our self-worth, the, the proud thoughts of our hearts. Do you see what Mary's saying? With a value judgment in the world's eyes, which says you are comfortable, you are significant because of the size of your paycheck or the size of your bank account or the size of your house or the size of your friendship group or the size of your self-esteem. With those things comes the danger of having an identity which is blind to your real state before God. And so Mary, I think, is describing actually the fundamental way that God relates to people when she says God lifts up the humble. Because the Bible's verdict is, isn't it, on all of us, that however successful, however significant, however religious, however morally upstanding any of us might think we are, we are actually all guilty of building an identity away from God, ignoring him, not wanting to know him, which means whether we see it or not, we are, spiritually speaking, Bankrupt, hungry, poor, proud. Mary says when it comes to being significant before God, 
We actually don't have anything to offer, nothing to bring, nothing to boast in. And the only question is whether or not we realize and accept that. And in a world which says, (laughs) believe in yourself because you're worth it, that's a bit awkward, isn't it? In a world that says you're basically good, that's a little bit offensive. In a world which says, prove yourself, perform, build an identity on what you have, and what you achieve, and your own self-belief, what Mary's saying is a sobering verdict on all of us. But, actually, it's a verdict which makes us rejoice. It makes Mary rejoice. Why? Because the song, the, the, the God that Mary is singing her song about is the God, she says, who lifts up the humble. As Christmas approaches, I don't know about you, I've already said it once, I'm excited about the food. Anyone else excited about the food? And it's not just the turkey, is it, and the stuffing and the the potatoes and the pudding and all the the things that we have at mealtimes. There's something, isn't there, about being fed, about enjoying fellowship around a table, of being filled and, and fed up with good things, which is synonymous with rest and contentment, isn't it? Feelings of of love and satisfaction with family and friends. Food has this incredible ability to actually make us feel full, not just physically, but spiritually. Uh, There's there's, um, a food critic who once put it like this, to feed someone is to take charge of their happiness. So I think it's just a lovely phrase, isn't it? Something to remember this Christmas. It's a wonderful way of putting it, and it's actually a wonderful picture, therefore, an image that Mary gives about the kind of God and his approach to the humble that she's singing about. Because she's saying the God we meet at Christmas, the God who comes to us in Jesus, the God who the nativity story is all about, is fundamentally the God who wants to feed us and take charge of our happiness, isn't he? The God of the Christmas story is the God who welcomes and lifts up the hungry and the poor and the weak. And that's why Mary sings for joy, doesn't she? She sings for joy because she's announcing, in sending Jesus, God is stepping into a world that doesn't want to know him, a world that builds its identity away from him, a world of poor, hungry sinners in need of forgiveness. And in doing that, Mary's saying... He's acting out the first act in a narrative that will end 33 years later with God becoming himself poor and hungry and weak and going to a Roman cross in place of people who deserve to be there so they can be forgiven, so they can be welcomed, so they can be lifted up, which I think means raised to significance, being accepted by the God who loves to show grace. That word blessed that Mary used about herself, it's a social word and it means to have a high standing before God. So Mary says we should rejoice this Christmas because we should remember God is a God who lifts up the humble. And it's the reason I think that traditionally the gospel, the message of Christmas, the message of Jesus, has done well among the poor and the marginalized. Because when you know physically that you have nothing to offer, when you are of low estate, in a sense, you're more ready to receive and welcome 
and rejoice at the fact that in Jesus, God lifts up those who admit that spiritually they are humble and have nothing to offer. It's challenging, isn't it, for us? And it's worth thinking for a moment. I don't know about you, how often do we forget that that's what God is like? How often do we forget, actually, that this is the way God wants to relate to people, that this is the way God wants to relate to us? What does it look like to forget that God lifts up the humble? I don't know about you, I was thinking about some of the ways I forget. I think it comes out in two ways for me, at least. Firstly, it can come out in my spiritual pride. We pretend we're sorted and strong before other Christians, rather than being open and honest about our struggles. Spiritual pride. Or we can look down on other people because they don't measure up to some standard that we think they should have. Maybe we don't have time for people who are weak or seem insignificant or awkward, as if we also aren't people who are poor and humble, ultimately speaking. Or how about this? How often do you find you, you subtly start to measure your significance and your acceptance before God because of how often you've prayed this week or read your Bible or how well you've battled that sin that you just can't seem to kick? As if somehow those things, if you succeeded in them, would make up for your spiritual poverty before God. Do you see? Spiritual pride. Forgetting that God is a God who lifts up the humble. Or maybe, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you think, no, no, I, I don't feel like I have much inside me, Lewis. I don't feel like I struggle with that kind of spiritual pride. Maybe it comes out in spiritual despair. Do you ever struggle to believe that God could really accept you because of that sin that's lurking in your past? Yes, I know that's how the gospel works, but does it really work that way for me? Do you ever fail to pray because you haven't prayed in a while and you think God couldn't possibly want to hear me pray now, not after the week I've had. Do you ever arrive at church or at home group or something and you actually spend the whole time looking over your shoulder and worrying that you don't measure up to some standard that you think it means to be a Christian as you meet other people? Do you see, it's forgetting that God is a God who lifts up the humble, the poor, the weak and the broken. And if Christian things are new to you, or maybe if you, you know, you're still you're here as a guest or you're, you're just sort of thinking about these things, can I say, absolutely categorically, if, if you think a Christian, being a Christian, is about something you do or some standard you have to measure up to, something you need to attain to, can I say gently, you're not just barking up the wrong tree, you're in the wrong forest. Because being a Christian is exactly the opposite of those things. Mary's song reminds us, God is not impressed by spiritual CV. God doesn't disqualify us because of a poor track record. This, this feeding that is on offer, it's not a dinner party that you have to buy a ticket for. This isn't bring a bottle. Mary's song gets us ready for the coming of Jesus by reminding us the only people God turns away are those who think they don't need his forgiveness. The proud in heart. Verse 50, actually, if you look back, verse 50 is, is the kind of um, response. It's the only response that we bring to the God who lifts up the humble. Did you see what, what Mary says? God's mercy, she says, is for those who fear him. And that just simply means not, not cowering in fear. It means reverence. It means recognition of who we really are. 
and who God really is, that he is the God who lifts up the humble. Those who fear the Lord are welcomed by the God who lifts up the humble. It's a wonderful reminder, isn't it? I know it's familiar. But in the build-up to Christmas, will we let Mary's song encourage us to rejoice afresh? That God blessed Mary in sending Jesus. But he did that because this is the way he works. He's a God who lifts up the humble. Which means finally, the last part of Mary's song, Mary shows us that in light of those things, we really can trust that God delivers on his promises. The last part of the song, look down, verses 54 to 56. I don't know if you noticed, but there's something slightly odd in Mary's song. Um, she's, she sings all the way through about things that God has done. Did you notice? He has already done great things for her. He has shown strength, she says, and scattered the proud with the strength of his arm. He has lifted up the humble and fed the hungry. And yet at this point in the story, if you think about it, what's happened? All she's had is the announcement from Gabriel. We're not even told how far along her pregnancy is, whether she's, she's starting to show or not, or any of those kind of things. Um, and yet she speaks in the past tense. And it's a literary device. It's something that um, the psalm writers often use as well to make a point. What God has said will happen is as certain as if it had already happened. And so Mary sings about it with rejoicing. Look at verse 54. Mary says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Just as he promised our ancestors. Mary trusts, she trusts that this, this pregnancy, this plan of salvation is the fulfillment of God's amazing promises. And they're promises which stretch back all the way through the history of God's people. Back to Abraham, through his descendants, through Mary, and now they're being fulfilled in the Christmas story. And so I take it Mary in her song, and as we consider the way that she processes at the start of Christmas these events, I take it she's a model for us of what faith in God's promises, trusting that he will fulfill what he says he will do. She's a model of what it looks like to trust that, Mary, that God delivers on his promises, even when they haven't arrived yet. Look back at verse 45. This was the intro, if you like, to Mary's song. It was actually what Elizabeth says about Mary. Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her would be accomplished. We're going to see next week that there is another song that we're going to hear about. It's like the follow-up Christmas single that Luke gives us. Um, and it's Zachariah's song. And earlier in the chapter, he also had a visit from Gabriel. And he also had an announcement that God was going to do amazing things through the birth of a child. And it's a deliberate contrast. We have two people who have these announcements about God's plan of salvation through children. And we're supposed to notice, where is Zechariah, the priest... The person who was ministering in the temple of God, the professional Christian, the person you would expect to believe God and be held up as a model of faith. Whereas he is rebuked by Gabriel for doubting his announcement. By contrast, Mary, this unknown Jewish girl, this insignificant person from a corner of the world called Nazareth, Mary is held up in Luke's gospel and commended because she believes that God will fulfill his promises. Do you see, of the two people who sing these songs, it's 
it's Zachariah who you would expect to be the model of faith. And yet Luke encourages us to see it's Mary who actually trusts that God will deliver on his promises. We'll see next week that that's a bit harsh on Zachariah. He's got lots to tell us as well. But do you see the contrast that's deliberately made? And you see it in verse 56 as well. What does Mary do after she's written and recounted this song? Verse 56, it's kind of lovely little um, sort of end to the account really, isn't it? What does it say? And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then she went home. She went back to normal life. This pregnant Jewish girl, as yet unmarried, visited her sister and then went home and got on with being pregnant, didn't she? And consider this. She then waited, didn't she? And she trusted. And she went to Bethlehem to have a baby. And then she waited and she trusted as she grew, as he, sorry, grew and she raised him. And then she waited and she trusted as 30 odd years later he started to teach and draw a crowd and cause a stir. And then some 33 years later she watched him die, nailed to a Roman cross, and she waited and she trusted. And I don't think we're supposed to think that was an easy thing that Mary did. I don't think we're, we're to think she wouldn't have had questions along the way. I don't think we're supposed to think that Mary is some superhero who maybe didn't doubt or struggle to believe what God would do, that he would fulfill his promises. But she waited and she obeyed and she believed God's promises that he would save. And she lived in light of those things. She sang with confidence, even though those things were yet to come, weren't they? Because... As her song tells us, she was trusting that God is the strong one who fulfills his promises. Not that she is a superhero. Um, a few years ago, I, I went walking in Scotland with a friend. And on the approach to a particular Munro that we were going to climb, um, there was a sort of a ravine with a bridge that had been built across it for you to cross. And as we approached the, the, the bridge, there was a very clear sign, um, and there was a similar sign on the other side that we could see that said, only four people maximum on this bridge at any one time. And we were there by ourselves, so with confidence we started to walk. And when we were about halfway across, um, to our horror, around the corner came five rather large Scottish gentlemen and a big Alsatian dog. And they seemed to walk straight past the sign on their side of the bridge and straight onto the bridge. And at that moment, I had one thought. Can't Scottish people read? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. Apologies. No, I had one thought, and the thought was this, and it's simple, but I think it's significant. Uh, I didn't at that moment think, gosh, how strong is my trust in this bridge? How big is my faith that this bridge can hold all of these people and this dog? No, the only thing I thought about at that moment, the only place my mind went, the only thing that really mattered at that moment was not the strength of my faith. It was the strength of the thing that I was trusting in. The point is this, trusting in God, I think Mary shows us, is not about the size of her trust, it's about the strength of the person she's trusting. Did you notice, apart from the first line of this song, there is not one line which doesn't have either the words, he has, 
or him. Every line is focused not on Mary, but on God. Mary's faith in God's promise is, I think, an encouragement for people who struggle to trust God. Because it reminds us that the faith that is held up as a model here in Mary is a humble trust that trusts it is God who is strong to fulfill his promises. Not you. It's trusting that he is faithful, even when we are not, because we are humble. And we should recognise we are. It's trusting that God is the one who time and again will welcome back poor, broken, weak, humble sinners. And so trusting God, trusting that God will fulfil his promises, I think Mary's song shows us, it doesn't remove us from the struggles of living in a fallen world, does it? Where, where Christians, um, particularly in some parts of the world, are still downtrodden, marginalised, at the bottom of the pile. It doesn't deliver us um, from the struggles of battling sin and believing day after day that God's grace really is enough, even for us. It doesn't deliver us um, from when it's hard to believe that it's really worth trusting in God for his blessings, which are still to come when we live in a world around us which tells us no significance comes from your position in society or everything that you have or what you think of yourself. So you see, we're a bit like Mary. We, we look back and we have more because we have the playing out of the Christmas story. We have the real blessings of knowing God now, of being forgiven, of, of having the Spirit with us. But we do live in the now and the not yet, don't we? We live, actually, in a time where ultimately God hasn't completely delivered on his promises. He hasn't ultimately scattered the proud and exalted the humble. But we look at the Christmas story, we look at the story of the cross that it leads to. We look at what God has done in sending Jesus. And Mary reminds us that we get ready by trusting that God will fulfill his promises. That's ultimately how Mary gets us ready for this Christmas story, I think. Because she reminds us this is a story not about Mary and what she did. It's a story about God, isn't it? And what ultimately he will do if we wait on him. And so... Quite simply, I think the application is we should rejoice this Christmas. Rejoice that God blessed Mary. Rejoice and remember that God lifts up the humble. And trust that God will deliver on his promises. Let's let's have a moment of quiet. Let's just um, reflect and maybe read over again um, this wonderful song that Mary gives us. And then um, we're going to sing. And we're going to sing two wonderful songs Um, one that encourages us to rejoice like Mary did tell out my soul and then one that encourages us to commit to trusting that God is the one who is faithful in fulfilling his promises and that Christmas reminds us to stand firm on those promises so let's have a moment of quiet and then I'll pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song of Mary's. And we thank you for what it shows us about what you're like and how you deal with us. And the wonderful truth of the Christmas story that you draw near to humble people, to low, broken, weak sinners.
because you are a God who fulfills your promises to show mercy. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would heed the warning of this song that when we are tempted to trust in things, in status, in stuff, Father, would you remind us that ultimately to humble ourselves before you is the best place to be because you are the God who lifts up the humble. And I pray, Lord, that you would simply give us joy this morning in our hearts, the joy that Mary had, that we would, in our souls and with our spirits, uh, lift up you as the God who exalts the humble and who delivers on your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.